All right, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. So we are nearing the end of the fourth of five major sections of Matthew's gospel. Each one of those sections ends with a similar sort of statement. You read something like this, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And most of those statements come at the end or near the end of a sort of block of Jesus' teaching that Matthew records. And that block in this fourth section is basically chapter 18 that we're embarking on today. And in this case, it is one nearly interrupted record of teaching that really centers around one theme. And if you let your eyes just kind of, I don't know, fall down over the chapter, and if you have headings in your Bible, you could notice those at least, um, I think you'll see that the chapter is focused on a particular theme. Jesus begins the chapter um, in answer to the apostles' question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that starts the ball rolling. And from there, he goes on to admonish them about their personal attitudes in relating to other disciples. And then he warns them about the danger of causing other people to sin. And then he cautions them against despising other disciples. And he teaches them how to react to brothers and sisters who persist in sin. And then finally, how to respond when someone seeks their forgiveness in in repentance. And so basically all through this, Jesus is teaching his followers how to live together in the kingdom of God. That may be just a good thing to remember as we come to this 18th chapter. Jesus is teaching his followers how we live together in the kingdom. Because Jesus' kingdom isn't just Jesus the king over you in your life individually. It is true, that is uh, the case, but we are a part of a kingdom made up of the people of God uh, from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds gathered together in one people in one realm. And as such, we have to learn to glorify God by living together with other citizens of that kingdom. That's, I think, what this chapter is about. And so I pray and I trust that it'll have the effect for us that it is meant to have had uh, for Jesus' first followers and then for all of those who read this. Of course, think about even Jesus' initial disciples, the twelve, are gathered together in a pretty close-knit community. I mean, they travel together, they live together at times in close quarters. No doubt they experience the inevitable tensions that come by living with other people, even other redeemed people who nevertheless have that sin that clings so closely 
So Jesus deals with them in a way that will help them to think about living together, and I trust will help us. When you come in to be a part of a church, you quickly realize that a church is full of redeemed sinners who sometimes get on each other's nerves, who sometimes sin against each other, a group of people who sometimes disagree with one another, who display their Christian immaturity at times, who at times can be jealous and envious and bitter with one another. If you have found a church somewhere that doesn't seem to have any of that, you probably just haven't stayed around long enough, right? And the same is true in our homes. No matter how good a husband or wife we try to be, or parents or children, no matter the extent to which the grace of God has already worked in our lives, we still need teaching like this to live in the kingdom of God. May God forgive us all for our failures and continue to grow us. And that, I hope, is what this chapter will help with. So we're going to read our text. We're just going to introduce the chapter with the first five verses this morning. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So there's our text. The disciples um, are here with the Lord, and that's actually, in this case, I think it's helpful to let the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke in particular, kind of fill out the setting of what's going on here. Um, Jesus and his disciples have just come down from the far north up in Caesarea Philippi, and they are making their way now down south through the area of Galilee. They're stopping for a period of time in Capernaum, where, of course, Jesus spent much time and where apparently Simon Peter had a home. They stay there on their way, ultimately now down to Jerusalem, where Jesus will spend the last um, weeks of his life and where he will face um, uh, the persecution of the Jews and ultimately death at the hands of the Romans. He will lay down his life. Uh, there. But on their way now down through Galilee and stopping in Capernaum, um, on the path, somewhere between Caesarea Philippi and Capernaum, apparently, the disciples had had a friendly discussion. Um, okay, they had they'd been arguing. And Jesus asks them about that. In fact, um, Uh, At first, it seems like uh, something that we can't really relate to. You know, we don't have discussions 
probably too often out loud verbally with each other about which of us is the greatest. I don't know. Have you? Uh, maybe it's different in your house, but you know, most of the time we don't, we don't really say those things out loud. But we do that in more subtle ways. And perhaps it's the same with the disciples. I don't know what they said out loud, what kind of looks they gave or what they insinuated by what they said or how they talked amongst themselves or about one another. But somehow it was clear that they were concerned about who was the greatest. And and those things come out in subtle ways like how we talk about certain people with other people. This kind of mindset comes out in the way that we compare ourselves among ourselves, in the way that we assume that we know other people's thoughts or motives, in the way that we marginalize certain people from our little social spheres and by the way that we try to be visibly connected and close to those who seem more significant in the body of Christ or more influential or just more cool. (laughs) And perhaps there was some jealousy going on among the disciples um, of Peter or James and John. We're not told all the details of what they were thinking, but you can imagine, right? Just imagine with me these guys. These normal, human, still sinful men. I'm sure they were aware of the uh, desire, uh, the zeal of the mother, anyway, of Peter, uh, of James and John, who would come to Jesus later and say, Jesus, when you come and sit on your throne, can my boys have your right hand and your left hand? Right? And so maybe, you know, they were already thinking among themselves about oh, well, we know who, uh, who thinks they're the greatest in this church, in this gathering. And, of course, Peter. Peter was pretty dominant. I can see people being perhaps uh, envious or, or concerned about his place among the apostles. Um, he was the one who had verbalized the great confession of faith. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him, saying, Right, This was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And you are Peter, a rock. And on this rock I will build my church. And you can just imagine the feelings of other guys, the, the thoughts, the sinful... You, you can imagine because you've had them, right? You've had those kinds of thoughts. When someone else is exalted and lifted up. And then... Of course, almost immediately after that, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you know, to Peter. So maybe they're thinking, well, huh, he got what he deserved. I don't, you know, just, just kind of put yourself in the situation and imagine the ways that you have tended to think about other people, comparing yourselves with others, measuring yourselves by some other person. And you can pretty easily see the kinds of conversations and subtexts that were going on as the men walked 
down the road. So it's a matter of great interest to them. Who's the greatest? Who's going to be in charge? Who of us is the most important? Self-interest is always a matter of great interest to us. Just think about when you see a photo of yourself in a group, whose face do you look for first? This is human nature. And Luke says that Jesus somehow already knew what was in their minds, what, 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 they, what they were thinking. Maybe he overheard them. Maybe he just this was an exercise of his omniscience. I don't know. But in some way, he already knew what was going on, what they'd been talking about. But Mark says that he asked them, point blank, what were you talking about? Kind of like when God came to Adam in the garden and said, what have you done? God is confronting Adam about what God already knows. So Jesus confronts the disciples. And at first, Mark says that the disciples were silent. They didn't want to, they didn't want, they didn't want to say anything because they're ashamed, of course, of what they've been thinking and what they've been saying and whispering between and among themselves. But finally, in the end, at Jesus' insistence, they blurted out, and here you have it in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's what we were talking about. And so often, as I thought about this, I think so often the Lord does give us the opportunity to come clean with Him. You know what I mean? When the Lord comes to you and He whispers in your heart, what have you done? What did you say? What did you think? What did you do? As if he doesn't already know, but the Lord intends for his people to verbalize and to confess their guilt. Not because he wishes to punish them, but because he wishes to chasten and to cleanse and to teach them in his grace and in his mercy. And until we come to really face up to our own depravity, then grace is not really grace to us. You will either humble yourself before the Lord or He will humble you. And in His grace, He makes us all face our own sin in all of its ugliness. Who of us has not experienced the grace of God in doing just that. And the amazing thing is that these men would be the men who the Lord would use to lay the foundation of the church. These guys who are talking about who's the greatest, who's going to be the best, who's out in front. These men, these faulty, failing, sinful, proud men in the flesh, these men yet by the Spirit of God are going to be the men that Christ uses to lay the foundation of the church. Which just reminds me that the church of Jesus Christ is not built on great men. The church of Christ is built on one person of greatness alone. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation that no one else can lay. He is the only great one in His church. He knows our hearts, 
He knows what we think, what we feel, our hidden motives, our secret thoughts. He knew these apostles, warts and all, in all of their pettiness and their faithlessness and fear and anger and their jealousies, but He chose them knowing who they were. In fact, He would lay down His life for those men. Not because of who they were, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And the foundation of the Christian church would be strong, not because these men laid it, but because the foundation was Christ Himself. And so He draws it out of them like He does with us so often. And they open up, and they put it out there. There is their shame. Lord, we were arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And in response to their question that he pulls out of them, they, uh, the Lord gives them an object lesson, and he calls for a child. Maybe, maybe it's Simon Peter's son, maybe a child that was there in the house. He asked this little child to come and to stand in the midst of them. And here's what our Lord said to those who were so consumed with themselves. Verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Let's pause on that for a moment. Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God which to me raises a couple of questions right off the bat. One being, he says to them, unless you turn, unless you're converted, aren't they already converted? And then he says, unless you turn and and you become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to ask, well, aren't they already citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Aren't they already converted? Aren't they already believers? Aren't they already His disciples? What does He mean by saying, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? And I think this indicates that He's viewing or talking about the kingdom of heaven in its fullest future sense. That is, as it comes when Christ returns so that entering that kingdom is still future for them. And, of course, for us, as long as the Lord has not returned yet, even if we are already kingdom citizens, as was, I think, true of them. Which teaches us that true kingdom citizens will not go on in their pride. Can I say that again? True kingdom citizens will not go on in their pride, or in any other sin. The Lord will deal with them, and they will repent. However imperfect their repentance might be, and however much they might fall back into the same thing again down the road, they won't just go on in their sin. Unless you turn, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus says. In other words, I think you see this again and again and again in the Scripture. Repentance and faith are the continual orientation of the heart, of a believing heart. Repentance is the continual orientation 
of a believing heart. It's not just some one-time act that you did a long time ago. I repented of my sin. I put my faith in Jesus. No, faith is an ongoing thing, and so is repentance. Unless you turn and continue to turn from all of the sins that the Lord continues to expose in you, then you're not a Christian. If you grow hard and you don't care about that sin and you go on in that, I don't see any indication in the Bible anywhere that you belong to the Lord. And so you see it here again. He says, unless you turn, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As the Lord continues to expose our sinfulness, we, by His grace, continue to turn from it. And only those kinds of people are truly kingdom citizens. And so, in the end, will enter into the age to come. So, now, what does Jesus actually say? The, the, the condition is this. He says, if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like what? Like little children. You must become like children. So, let's think about what that means. What does it mean to become like a child? Well, I, a lot of people have given different answers. <laughs> Yeah, different kind of answer. Some people say, well, to be childlike means to, to be innocent and good, just like little children. And one commentator said, I wonder if those people ever raise children, <laughs> right? Because it doesn't take us long to realize that our children are not innocent and good. They're born sinful. Somebody said... Well, it means that you have a childlike trust, just a simple dependence. And I think that's probably closer to it and, and really gets at part of the answer here. But, but Jesus really identifies in verse 4 specifically what he has in mind here as he's using that illustration. He says, verse 4, very explicitly, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is the childlike quality of humility that must characterize kingdom citizens. Humility. Humility is lowness. <laughs> it's being in a place of not much account. Like a child in the ancient world, was not of much account. Uh, Paul says in one passage that a child, as long as he, as he is a child, is no different from a what? From a slave or a servant, right? It's a passage I remind my children about all the time when we're passing out chore assignments. But that's it. A child lives in an adult world. He has to submit to the will of the adults around him. He's dependent on them. He doesn't have power in the situation. He's, he's low, in a lowly position. And I think what Jesus is saying, I really think this, he's not, he's not really getting it saying that children naturally make themselves lowly or think of themselves in a lowly way. It's just the way it is. They realize that they are low on the totem pole. That's, you know, they don't have the power. And I think in that sense, he's not saying to us, try hard to imagine yourself to be lowly. 
but rather he's saying, recognize that you are lowly. It comes not by comparing ourselves to one another, for then we are either proud or depressed, but rather it comes by comparing ourselves to what we ought to be, comparing ourselves to God. As our Lord said, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. In that sense, when we begin to do that, when we consider the greatness of God and the goodness of God, we realize where we are. (laughs) We realize where our place is. Humility. This is what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I don't know very many other words (laughs) that quite so encapsulates the essence of a Christian response to God. Certainly faith would be the number one word we would think of, repentance. Um, But humility has got to be right up there. Humility toward God. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said that that was the characteristic that the Pharisees lacked. They like to be known among people as the really holy ones. They lived not for people, but for what people thought of them. I want to ask you, is that how do you live? Do you live for people, or do you live for what people think of you? How much of that latter is intermingled and mixed in with your motives to glorify God. To that extent, we need to turn. Turn from our pride and our self-centeredness. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 is another place the Scripture uses this term. Paul talks in that passage about being willing to be a menial laborer in order to preach the gospel to the Corinthians who considered themselves to be culturally superior to Paul. But he was willing to be lowly for their sake and for the sake of the gospel. Or Philippians chapter 2, which is probably a very well-known passage to you, where we're told that even our Lord, as Paul mentioned this morning, even our Lord made Himself low. We talk about two great stages of Christ's redemptive work, His humiliation and His exaltation. He was willing to come and humble Himself to not hold on to His glory, but to take upon Himself the form of a what? Of a servant. And He did that for us. And then then, so Paul says in Philippians, then you, brothers, sisters, you should have that same mindset among yourselves. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So... Who's the most important in the kingdom of God? Who is the most significant person in the church? 
who is indispensable here? And the answer is absolutely nobody. We are all a bunch of little children. There's only one who is great in the kingdom, and that's the king. And that's the point I think Jesus is getting at. And one of the greatest indications that we understand this is how we respond to other children in the kingdom, other little ones like ourselves. And later in this chapter, he's going to teach us that humble people don't despise the lowly. Those are the only kind of people that God saves, right? Lowly people. Humble people, he's going to teach, they don't take vengeance themselves. They submit to the judgment of the church and of the elders. Humble people, he's going to teach us, don't hold grudges, but they forgive one another. Like little children, they quickly forget, or they pray that they may forget, that it may be cast away in the deepest sea what their brothers and sisters have done to hurt them, to trouble them. Humble people receive those who are lowly in Jesus' name. And that's what you see in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name, he says, receives me. Your ministry to the smallest, to the weakest, to the least influential, to the most seemingly insignificant, to those who are in a low time spiritually or emotionally or physically, that ministry to those kinds of people, brothers and sisters, listen, is nothing less than ministry to our Lord. Our Lord comes to us to receive our praise, not in the persons of great men who need our fawning adoration. He comes to us to be worshipped in the form of the least who need to be served and loved and encouraged and strengthened and helped. These are the people the Lord says, if you receive in my name, that you receive me. One day, he will say, I was naked, but you clothed me. I was sick, but you visited me. I was in prison, but you came to me. And you'll say, Lord, when did we ever do any of that? And he will say, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's what he's teaching here. It's the same thing he taught back in chapter 10 where he says, the one who receives a prophet come from the Lord because he comes in the name of the Lord, receives the Lord, and will have the prophet's reward. Whoever receives those who are lowly receives the Lord the least of these. Which just ought to make everybody in here get up and run back and sign up for nursery duty next week, right? 
or something like that. James chapter 2 that Brother Paul read at the beginning of the service, James gives a very poignant picture of a person who comes into a church and he looks just right, just the kind of way you'd want a person to look. And everybody rushes over to greet him. And another comes in who doesn't seem like he can bring us a lot of benefit. And so he's ignored. God forbid. We're all just a bunch of little children looking to our master here. And may the Lord humble our hearts that it would actually be true about us. I mean, really, visibly, genuinely true by the way that we respond to each other, by the way that we live together, that we do not consider ourselves to be easily mistreated. For we know what we really deserve. We are people of no account. If anything good comes to us, rather, we have reason to be charging God with injustice, if anything. Humility is just about the heart of the Christian religion. God resists the, but to the humble, He gives grace all day long. Right? A humble person may struggle, he may fall, but if he humbles himself before the Almighty God, he will receive grace upon grace. This is the wonder of the gospel purchased by the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the humble, God gives grace. Humility is like the oil that keeps the church running smoothly. If the church lacks humility, you begin to see it grind upon one another and everything comes to a halt. People who own their own depravity are patient with the brokenness of those around them. People who know that they've been forgiven much are the quickest to forgive those who've done wrong to them. It's when we forget what we've been forgiven that we grow angry and bitter. It's people who know that they deserve nothing who are the least likely to be offended and carry a grudge around with them. What is it for you? How is your heart? You have some things to deal with the Lord about today? The people who cause the most problems in churches so often seem to be those who think they're the most spiritual ones in the congregation have a a higher view of themselves. We're going to have to fight to uh, resist this urge to compare ourselves with one another. It is so much a part of human nature. It's a fight every 
person, every Christian has to fight. Pastors have to fight it. Pastors who gather together in pastors' fellowships where men go around the room sharing the apparent blessings of God on their churches. And the pastor sitting there feels that most vile and disgusting and perverted sense of petty comparison rising up within his soul. It is the most wicked thing that you can imagine. Because all of the work is the work of God. God alone. It's a a fight that every single person has to battle in your own mind, in your heart, in your thinking. You have to be aware of the Spirit's conviction when your mind begins to go down the wrong road and be sensitive to Him as He begins to correct and bring your thinking back to what it ought to be. You're going to have to fight that battle of, on the one hand, feeling superior because you're comparing yourself with others and feeling pretty good about yourself. Or on the other hand, comparing yourself with others and feeling depressed. Both of them, I say, are symptoms of thinking too much about yourself. If you get your mind on serving others, how can you not receive the little ones in the kingdom? Think about them. Think about your brothers and sisters. Not thinking about what they think of you, but thinking about them. How can I bless them? How can I strengthen my brothers? How can I encourage my sisters? How can I serve the people of God from the greatest apparently to to the least? Listen carefully to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We dare to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the answer to the question, who is great in the kingdom of God? is only the king. The rest of us are mere children. And the lower that we sink, the greater we are. The further down we stoop to serve the body of Christ, the more blessed we will be. Make me, O Lord, a child again, so tender, frail and small, in self-possessing nothing, in Thee possessing all. O Savior, make me small once more, that downward I may grow, and in this heart of mine restore the faith of long ago. With Thee may I be crucified, no longer I that lives, O Savior, crush my sinful pride. 
by grace which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to thy call, in self possessing nothing, in thee possessing all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today and even the sting of it because we know the sting is meant to bring healing. I pray now that you would continue to cut back the layers of our hearts and help us to see those areas of sinful pride in comparison with others. Help us to see those areas where we have become self-centered, self-absorbed. Right now, please, Lord, deal with our hearts. Break us and then heal us, we pray. By the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask it in Jesus' name.